0: It's Opera Redemption Church. How are you guys? Welcome to Midwinter Break, where families of the Northwest go in search of the elusive Helios creature. I know some families are like, "We're going to Las Vegas. I'm like, "Why would you take your kids to Las Vegas because they're sun? good enough reason for me. All right, so let's go out and pray, get ready and get right to business. Jesus, we thank you, uh, man, for grace. I, I think about that so profoundly today. Is We're going to be looking at this uh, story of uh, Paul celebrating the power of grace in people's lives, in the life of a church, in his own life, and I pray that we will be people who love what grace is all about, that we will love that we have been recipients of grace, that we will love to show and shed grace in the lives of others, that we will see the power and strength of a word that sometimes sounds so feminine, but it's actually so absolutely powerful, and so I pray you would teach us and guide us this morning, I pray that we are eager for what it is you want to say to us, and I pray that we are faithful to your calling in our lives, So we look to you, we love you, we need you, and we thank you, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. Alright, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Acts. Chapter 20, that's where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, we're going to be camping out there for the entire morning, so you want to make sure you get to Acts chapter 20. We're going to eventually start in verse 17. Now, as you are on your way there, I remind you what this little series we've been engaged in is all about. Uh, we are looking at the legacy of the church of Ephesus. So we're looking at everything in the Bible that pertains to this city and the church that was in that city. Because we want to learn life lessons from a 60 year span of their history, right? That's the heart. And this first part of the series is looking at how this church was first planted in the city of Ephesus. Now most of us have not been a part of the opportunity to plant a church from scratch, We've maybe been a part of church plants, we've maybe been with a big group of people that planted a church together, but to do a real grassroots, boots on the ground, start up from nothing church plant, most of us have not been a part of that particular task. And and, and if you have been, or if you ever are to be, there's some things about a church plant you're going to realize really quickly. The first thing you're going to know is that most church plants, they don't take root. Right? Most of the people that go and say, I want to plant a church. I want to see something established. They just don't take root. They have a lot of things going against them. You need to get to a critical mass relatively quickly. And if that doesn't happen, they just don't grab root, right? So planting a church from scratch, hard business. It's just hard, right? Then if by chance you actually see the plant grab hold, you see people that want to be involved, things start to get on the move, well, then you're going to have friction. Because if the church is doing something worthwhile, if it's impacting people's lives, if it's saying what God says and God is blessing that, man, all kinds of opposition comes and throttles that environment. But if the church by chance can even make it through that, gets through the plant, gets through the opposition, well then it has a whole new set of problems. Because as it grows and as people are added, people are problematic sometimes, right? People have issues. People have agendas. People have baggage. Some people have baggage and carry-ons. So you have to deal with all of that in the church, right? So a church is a tough gig to plant. Especially because churches, Christian churches, that are rooted in the cross and rooted in grace, for whatever set of reasons, have this propensity to drift into religion, into works, into legalism into being judgmental. It's just this drift, this poisonous thing that we begin to ebb toward as churches. So the church gig is a hard gig in every sense of what it is. The church is tough, it's robust, but it's complicated. And that is the very thing that Paul is committed to planting. In fact, in the late summer of 52 AD, Paul moves into the city of Ephesus and that is his goal, right? To drive a seed into the ground, to see a church established and take root and bring transformation to the culture that he's in. This glorious, beautiful, powerful, complicated, all too human at times thing called the church that exists for the glory and goodness of God. Right? That is what a church is all about. That's what Paul seeks to do. So he goes to Ephesus and for three years he toils, right? For three years he's working a full-time job, preaching during his breaks, trying to reach people, going against the flow. Because Ephesus, tough gig, man. Tough gig. I mean, it is just riddled with all sorts of religious ideas that are in conflict, all sorts of perversion. Crime, greed, corruption, slavery, I mean you name it, the occult, all of this. Such an unlikely place for a church to grab hold. But Paul is committed. And he stays for three years, longest stay, hardest journey, toughest things he fights with in that location. But then after three years of faithfulness, three years of effectiveness, three years of just sowing, caring, tending, trying, preaching, reaching, loving, working, what happens? Man, spirits on the move. And this church starts and people begin to embrace Jesus and they let go of their old life and they start to cleave to a new life. And they don't want the old things and they want the new things and they want to be changed and they want to be transformed. And they're being sort of liberated by all of these things. Because a church grabs hold in this unlikely context i mean nobody would think a thriving church would start in ephesus much less a church that would plant more churches than any other church of its era to be one of the few mega churches of the entire known world nobody would think that would happen in ephesus and here's the cool thing about this church when paul plants plants it and establishes it it's not a fortress Alright, it's not this thing where it says, alright, we're the people of God, we're going to build our high walls, and we're going to say we're against the culture, and we're just in here. It's just us four, bar the door, call it done. Right? That is not what Paul wants to start. Paul never dreamed of, Jesus never promoted the idea of this church that would be a fortress, that would build its walls and lob grenades over the wall at the world around it. You're broken, you're bad, you're wrong, you're sinful, you're sinister, you're perverse, you're whatever. That was not the goal of the church. A church was never established for a fortress mentality. Now that has happened within our culture. We saw the fundamentalist movement kind of rise up and what they had was good doctrine, which was awesome, but they also had this kind of animosity close off the world fortress. Paul didn't push a fortress for the church. He pushed an outpost. An outpost that is fueled by grace. An outpost that every day ferries out into its world, goes out into its environment, cares about its culture, makes an investment, wants to spread the message that it has, which is the message of the gospel of grace. See, that is what the church is called to. Outpost. Right? We're an outpost. Not a fortress. We want to be engaged. We want to be out in the surroundings. Not backed out of it. And the challenge is, is, when a church chooses to be that, when a church says, we're going outpost, man, we're going to ride right on the edge. We are going to reach our city and our culture in a way that they understand. When you do that, the fortress church goes, ah, you guys are bad. You're bad, you're black, you're not committed to truth, you don't love what is right. And that's not true at all. An outpost church most, most loves the truth and what is right. It most loves the truth the gospel of grace it most loves seeing people transformed and so that's why it's an outpost that's why it goes and so paul plants this outpost church and the church man as it is thriving and growing and people are being changed literally into the thousands there's a clash big riot in ephesus right people are like ah we can't stand this it's taking our livelihood it's taking our our income it's challenging our idols and our way of of life and how we understand things so we are opposed to the church and so there's all this friction right they want to get paul arrest people do things shut it down but the church is faithful and the church endures and it makes it through the clash and so eventually from that paul says it's time for me to move on And so after three years of toil and labor, Paul travels and he begins to visit other churches that have been planted and other venues that he's called to and that kind of thing. But it was a three-year labor of love. And he knows he's never coming back. These people he's fallen in love with, these relationships that he's built, he knows he's not going to return to it. But there's this time in Paul's life where he's eager to get back to Jerusalem. wants to get there for the Passover. He wants to celebrate that because the Holy Spirit is driving him in that direction. And, and so he consciously knows, like, i got to go near Ephesus, but I don't want to go to Ephesus because I want to stay. So he says, I can't do that, but maybe somehow I can connect with them. And he finds himself on this merchant ship and he stops in the seaport of a little place called Miletus, right? It's this, this, this enclave of a seaport that he stops in for maybe about a week. And he kind of does the math. He's like, well, let's see, we're three days travel from Ephesus. I could send somebody to Ephesus to get the elders of Ephesus. At least the elders of the church could come back and I can meet with them for maybe a day, and then I'll go on my way. And that's his motive. And so while he's there in Miltus, he set for he sent for the Ephesus or for the Ephesian elders of the church, to come to him, right? Verse 17. And I think there's a few reasons for this, why he wants these individuals to come. I think one is he just loves them and misses them, right? I mean, this is like he's their spiritual dad. He shared this message with them. They've kind of embraced it through him. And so he just would love to see them again be rekindled. The other part is he knows this is a strategic outpost. Ephesus is like unlike anything he's ever seen before. It's why he's going to write more letters to Ephesus than any other church. He's like, this place is different. I want to make a final investment into the leadership if I can. That's the big deal. And so he wants to get together with these elders. But i got to imagine when they show up and they come to him, what it must have been like for Paul. Right? Because I mean... Remember what he walked into just five years previous because it's been five years since he originally set foot into the city And and when he got there, uh, there was no church There was really no christians There's these 12 guys that believed in the message of john the baptist But they didn't even know if there's a holy spirit and I got to imagine among those elders because again It's a big church. You need a lot of elders and among some of those elders paul might be I remember the day that that guy asked if there really was a holy spirit And now he's an elder in the church of Jesus. And I remember that guy. That guy used to make idols in the marketplace. But he embraced the gospel. Now he's an elder in the church. And that guy, that guy right there, before he was an elder, was a criminal that found refuge in the temple of Artemis. But now, because he's been changed by the gospel, transformed. That guy's now an elder in the church. He married a woman that used to be a prostitute, but was redeemed by the gospel. And now is married to this man who loves on the people of God. I mean, you've got to imagine Paul's looking at all these people. that have been transformed in a five-year cycle, just filled with joy and satisfaction. A reminder that the gospel, the good news of God, changes people. This motley crew. Paul being the most motley of all. I mean, you got all these people that had all these different ways of life just a few years earlier, and then you had Paul himself, who was the guy that hated Christians, hated Jesus, killed the church, was just the chief of sinners, he says you got the chief of sinners hanging out with a bunch of other sinners that God has transformed into his church and his leadership. And from that, Paul is going to remind that it's God who liberates people in the word of grace, by the blood of God, through repentance and faith, for sanctification, to the glory of God. That's his message here in the book of Acts. And he's going to give it as reminder. They need to be reminded of these truths. And he's going to remind as one deeply knit to this group. I mean, you have to understand, as a church planter, as a pastor, uh, when you plant a church, when you're deeply involved in a massive transition within a church, that church writes on your heart as a leader. As a pastor, your soul becomes knit to that environment. So that's Paul. His soul is knit. He cares. And so he invests one last time. And it says, starting there in verse 18, as he has the elders together, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the very first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. See, here's what I dig about Paul. Um, He says, you guys know that, that I'm not just making this stuff up says so you guys know that this isn't just some message that I promote and my life doesn't reflect it. See, now Paul wouldn't say, I'm living the gospel. He wouldn't say that. Paul would say, no, 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 nobody lives the gospel. You can't live the gospel. The gospel is a message. It's something you proclaim. It's something you share. It's something you say. It's something you believe. But it brings forth a fruit or a declaration of change in your life. That doesn't mean you're living the gospel. It means you live from the abundance of that message, which is the good news of God. And he says, man, you know that I believe this message because my life reflects it. Nobody can look at me and say, ah, that guy, he's just full of it. He's just in it for the money. It's just shallow religion, but he doesn't really back it up with his life. He says, no, you know, you've looked at my life, you can see. I am different because of the message. See, sometimes uh, our poor model reflects wrongly on the message. Paul was graced by God in such a way that his life didn't reflect poorly on the message. And I find sometimes that people reject Jesus and reject the words of Jesus, not because of Jesus or the words of Jesus, but because of those who claim Jesus. They just sort of by osmosis say, well, if you're like that and you claim Jesus, then Jesus must be like that too. That's not the case. And Paul, though, his life mimicked and he imitated what it was really meant to do. So Paul would say, you know what, I don't tout grace, but I push law. He wouldn't emphasize holiness, but then be completely hypocritical around town. He wouldn't push values but be absent in kindness. He wouldn't remind people of hell with tearless eyes. He he wouldn't do that. He says, no, my life, it matched up. You could look at me and say, yeah, that message seems to to resonate. So he says, you know that. And this was true with great humility and, in tears. You yourselves know. See, here's what I love about this, and we're going to get to it here in a few minutes. What motivates Paul, what drives him more than anything else, isn't thumping people on the chest saying, you better live right. You better do right. You better comply with my standard. He's not that way. What Paul says is, only by the grace of God are we changed. Only by the grace of God do I stand. Only by the kindness and mercy of God am I anything. He does not roll in with some big high bar of works and efforts and says, this is what makes me acceptable. He says, I'm only acceptable by grace. That's why he preaches grace. That's why it's the gospel of grace. It's why he fights and contends for grace all the time. That's how he stands. That's why he says, with all humility and tears. Because he knows, you know what, my good works don't get me to heaven no matter what I do or what I don't do. That's not going to merit anything. It is only by grace. And that brings me to tears. That brings great humility. See, the truth is, before Paul embraced Jesus, he was a better person than almost anybody in this room. you realize that? We sometimes look and go, oh, he was the chief of sinners. Yeah, but look what his resume says. The reason he sees himself as the chief of sinners is because uh, he was very moral very prudent with his life, very self-disciplined, followed the law to the letter. I mean, the Old Testament, like, he had his Bible. He would say, you know that big section of the Bible, all that Old Testament right there? I, I was blameless, he would say. Before I knew Jesus, he would he'd say, I was blameless on all of that. And he would say, and I was absolutely sinful because I didn't see the value of grace. It meant nothing All of that goodness on my part. Nothing. Because even my goodness isn't really good. It's riddled with my own self-justification. It's riddled with my own self-pride. It's riddled with my own independence. And that's why he says, when I reflect on the grace of God, when I think what Jesus has done in my life, it brings me absolute tears and humility. Because I earn nothing. I deserve nothing. It overwhelms him. He's motivated by grace. And I would say even in our own lives, when we think about the overwhelming nature of grace, with all humility and tears, if we look at others and their offenses, their sins, their mistakes, their decisions, their lifestyles or whatever, and it breeds in us anger and irritation and frustration, we haven't come to get grips with grace then. Because actually what it should breed in us is what it bred in Paul. Humility and tears. To break for people as opposed to judge people. To hurt for people and cry for people as opposed to point at people and talk about people. Grace says, man, I, I, I see myself in light of how God sees all people, which is apart from grace, we're in bad shape, no matter how awesome we think we are. And so when Paul reflects on grace, man, humility and tears. Not religion, not self-righteousness, not judgmental, humility and tears. Grace overwhelms him. We also see, though, that this grace in his life, it strengthens him. verse 19, where it says, "...and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." I mean, imagine this. Here's this guy. He's Jewish. He loves the Jews. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But he knows that these people do not like him. They do not want him. They do not approve of him. They want to shut him down. If they if he would just go away, they'd be thrilled. And he's like, and I had to keep enduring. I had to keep moving forward in grace. And let me tell you, I don't know if you've ever had in your life somebody actually conspiring to wreck your life. Actually plotting consciously plotting to make your life miserable. I've had that. People actually consciously loyally spending lots of money to make my life fat. I've had it. And can I tell you the hardest part of that? It's not the rumors. It's not the gossip. It's not the slander. It's not the innuendo. It's not the half-truths or whatever it is. That's not the hardest part. The hardest part is not growing bitter. The hardest part Is beating down your own sin when you want to retaliate. The hardest part is controlling your own sense of vengeance or your own sense of self righteousness or your own sense of vindictiveness. Beating that down is exhausting. Exhausting. A lot of times we don't. Instead, we grab onto it as something we're entitled to. It's my right to fight because they drew first blood. Paul had first blood drawn on him all the time. He would always get punched in the face by the Jews. And what would he do? What Jesus did He'd love his enemy, do good to them, pray for them, hope that God would change them, right? Because he understands grace. Grace received and grace given. Grace overwhelms him, grace strengthens him. But grace also motivates him. Remember, he's saying to the elders, you well know yourselves, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. What he says is, I left it all on the field. When I was there in Ephesus, even though people were plotting against me and I was having to deal with my own internals and I was having to work all the time and preach all the time and nobody was responding, I kept going. I kept sharing. I kept preaching. I kept giving you what was profitable. I kept pushing grace. Grace is seen in two critical truths that Paul references here. The first critical truth, repentance toward God. Understand, grace is tethered to repentance toward God. Now, some people look at that word repent and they go, "Ah, oh, there's one of those hell, fire, and damnation words." No, it's not. Repentance is the most liberating and freeing word ever, because repentance leads to forgiveness. That's grace. Grace says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Would you do that for anybody? If somebody wronged you severely and opposed you and mocked you and called you names and didn't follow what you wanted them to do and then they came to you and said, will you forgive me? Would you in one single moment say completely, totally and heartfelt? See, we wouldn't do it, but He does do it. Repentance brings forgiveness, which is gracious. But then he also says the other critical truth, not only re- repentance toward God whom we have offended, but he will forgive. It's also faith in Jesus to whom we can commit, which gives us purpose. All right? Not just some daily purpose like make money, pay my mortgage, do right things, but a deeper, more profound, eternal purpose. He says, man, that's what I preach. That's gracious to give an ultimate, overarching purpose. Paul's that says, Paul says, that's what I continued to do. And so from this, he says, you know what? I've made a full investment. I have no unfinished business. I don't feel like I need to make it back to Ephesus and give you a few more pointers. He's like, I don't, I don't feel that. I, I've done all that I'm supposed to do. I fulfilled my calling. It's complete. And so he says in verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm constrained by the Spirit. I, I dig this, man, because I look at this and I go, That's, I want that in my life. I, I want to be constrained by the Spirit. I don't want to just simply say, hey, God, I, I want you to give me right heart, but I'm always kind of fighting against it. Uh, I want to do the right thing because they know it's the right thing, but sometimes it's an irritant or it's a frustration or it kind of rains on my parade or it messes with my agenda. No, I want to be constrained. My prayer increasingly is, I just want to be absolutely sold out, constrained, driven, panting for what God wants to do. That is really my prayer. And I still fall short, I still struggle with these things, but I want to be what Paul was, which was held captive. That's what he means. And what I love about this is he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there in Jerusalem. I mean, imagine that, to be so constrained that you can run into the darkness full speed. You don't even know what's coming next. See, I'm like a visionary type personality. I want to know what's coming next and next and next. And I want to make sure it's a certain thing. Because if it's not a certain thing, then I want to be guarded. Paul is so constrained, he runs headlong. Not knowing what's going to happen to him, except it says that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me great motivator right i mean imagine it'd be like in my life if i started going to different regroups i show up to the regroup on sunday night what's going on we don't really know but the holy spirit says uh it's gonna suck for you cool i'm gonna go to another regroup right so i go to another regroup what's up we're not sure but the holy spirit says your life's gonna stink real soon awesome i'm going to the tuesday night group all right What's going on? Uh, Nothing, but the Holy Spirit says it's looking bad for you, bro, right? Like, you do that enough, and I'll be like, fetal position, you know? Like, I'm not inspired by this. I'm not encouraged. I'm not excited to move forward, but Paul is constrained. How can he be so constrained? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all is this. Here's what's cool about God. God doesn't try to butter you up. God will level with you. He'll level with you so God, what's next? Uh, you're going to suffer. Uh, couldn't you tell me something more positive? Right? Like, but he doesn't bait and switch. I mean, Jesus tells you that. I mean, if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus is like, let me do you a favor. If you follow me, it's going to be rough. Like he was not a motivational speaker at all. Like Jesus could not get on that circuit. Nobody would buy the Jesus book of leadership motivation right? They wouldn't. They'd be like, this guy says, uh, we do things right, we get hammered. We follow him, we get hammered. We want to be like him, we get hammered. Paul knows he's going to get hammered. But he's compelled because he's so tethered to the Holy Spirit that he doesn't suffer from something we suffer from often, which is fear. He just doesn't suffer from fear, right? He's so motivated by faith. That he doesn't suffer from this fear. In other words, for Paul, his life is not captivated by... You ready? Self-protection. He is not riddled with the need for self-preservation. He's just freed from that. It is so liberating to be in that place. In fact, for Paul, I believe in a lot of ways he thinks it's better to have a, 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 a life that is captivated by the Spirit, even though it has problems than to buy into the notion that I'm striving for a problem-free life that's never going to deliver, it's never going to materialize. So that's his heart. In fact, the whole secret behind this, the very spirit, is verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. In other words, for Paul, he is not fixated on survival. He is not worried about survival. He is only worried about, focused on, driven to be faithful. And I'll tell you why this is huge. Um, most of us, myself included, we are motivated far more by survival than to be faithful. And we might even think, "Well, no, survival is a value. Survival is really important. Self-preservation is really important. Personal security is really important. But here's the problem. When we have, as our chief goal, the desire for survival. And when I say that, I don't think I just mean physical survival. I'm talking about financial survival, uh, occupational survival, uh, reputational survival. Whatever, I don't even know if reputation is a word. I think I just made something up. Awesome. Alright, so, um, right? But whatever your survival is, right? Here's the problem. As soon as your survival is threatened, your values come apart. Right? Your values are going to come apart. You're going to alter your other values to survive when survival is the big idea. But if faithful is the big idea, then when something happens, your values align regardless of condition. Right? And that's Paul. He's not going, oh, if I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer. So instead of going to Jerusalem, I think I'll just hang out in Ephesus for a while because they love me there anyway. And it's a big church and thriving. I can plant a lot of other churches and bypass all that suffering. But his motive isn't to survive. It's to be faithful, right? And so he doesn't start to manipulate his values. God, I want to listen to you all the time. Oh, not when it's going to be hard. Now I don't want to listen. He doesn't do it. He's like, keep listening. because his life is in the Spirit. It's his due north. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. Right? I mean, this is to be the attitude of all of us. We want to finish strong. We don't want to finish as survivors. We want to finish as faithful. It's easy to survive. All you have to do is slit the throats of the people around you. All you have to do is make you first to survive. But you're not going to thrive in that. You may win, but you won't win over. You might stand on the top of the hill all by yourself. Paul is not interested in surviving. He's interested in thriving in grace, which means to be faithful and he's going to be faithful apart from what happens to him. So, man, if life is cut short, if he has loss, if he doesn't have whatever he wants, it's fine with him. doesn't matter. Because he's compelled by something, the one thing, in fact, that has changed everything. In fact, he's saying, I want to be faithful. I want to finish the course. I want to finish running through the ribbon to testify To the gospel of the grace of God. He says, that's my purpose. That's my function. That is my very life essence. To do that. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And this is kind of a testimony in three forms. First of all, it's a personal testimony. He says, man, the grace of God has changed me. The grace of God has made me a new man. I was an angry man, now I'm a happy man. I was a man driven by conditions, and if the conditions were right, I was happy. If the conditions were wrong, I was sad. And now he says, I'm a man freed of conditions. It doesn't matter the condition. I am always content in Christ. He says, that is my personal testimony. I know grace. I know it. It's changed me. I'm thriving in the context of that. I'm not bound by the afflictions of this world as though it matters to me. He says, I know grace. It's a personal testimony. He also testifies to the gospel of the grace of God as a proclamational testimony. He's like, I want other people to know about grace. I want other people to know that they, have, they don't have to keep trying to do and trying to earn and trying to impress. I want people to know that they don't have to fear people and their perspectives. They can just worry about God and the fact that if they just worry about that, if they're in grace, God sees them just like they, He sees Jesus. That's, that's an amazing truth. He says, I want people to know grace proclamational but it's also protective he's going to say often in his ministry don't lose grace don't forget grace don't corrupt grace don't pollute grace don't contaminate grace don't add to grace which is the temptation of us as christians right we start to get worried about people's sins so we want to control as opposed to inspire we want to take the stick of the law and beat it against the backs of people. We don't ever like the stick on our own back, but we're happy to use the stick on other people's backs sometimes. As opposed to the stick of grace, which has a carrot which inspires, moves. I, I want more of that. I want more of him. I want more of what he offers. I, I, I want to be different. It's not just be different, but I, but I want to be different. All right? Like in Ephesus, it's not that Paul was like, burn your idols. Get rid of your books. Be different. He didn't do that. He said, here's the grace of God. Change me. Can change you. Can totally make you different. People said, I want that grace. And I want to get rid of all of this. And I want to pursue that. Nobody forced anything. They were compelled like Paul by the Spirit through grace. That's it. And so he says, I testify to the gospel of grace. Don't lose grace. Don't focus on what you're supposed to do. Focus on what God has done. That's grace. Jesus paid it all, all. Paul says, focus on that, because that's why I testify to this gospel, right? So he says in verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I'm gone about proclaiming to the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There's a couple of things in here I think is cool. The first thing is this, it's the baton pass. What Paul says in essence is, um, I came, I preached, I shared, I encouraged, I discipled, I informed, I reminded, I warned, I did my job, I'm free of the blood of all men. Now here's the baton, don't break it. He's talking to the elders of a church and he's telling those elders of the church, don't damage the church. This is why elders in a church need to take their job seriously, because we take the baton from Paul. And Paul says, all right, Matt, Scott, Ryan, Steve, Steve, Tom, Byron, here's the baton. Don't break Redemption Church. This is your calling, your responsibility. It's been passed to you by legacy. So Paul says, man, I know that's true. He says, more than that, I testified to the full counsel of God. I didn't shrink away from telling you everything that God says. I tell you as a preacher, that's a tough gig? Because there's Sundays I roll in and I say stuff that's very receivable for everybody. Right? People are like, uh, what's he going to talk about? I go, God is love. And people go, oh, I like God's love. Right? God is gracious. Oh, I like God is gracious. God forgives. Oh, love the God forgives. God's got a plan for your life. Oh, love that. God saves. God inspires. Everybody can receive that. But then there's some Sundays I roll in, and I say, well, God judges. And you're like, oh. (laughs) Right? And I say, oh, God also rejects. Make him stop. God punishes. People are like, oh, might be looking for a new church. See, the, the, the good news is good news only in light of bad news. Otherwise, it's just news, right? So, so you need both the receivables and also the rejectables. And so there's times I will roll in on a Sunday. Before even Sunday, I'll have all my notes and I'll be looking at them. I'm like, okay, that one right there, that one's going to get an amen. And that one's going to get an uh-oh. Like, like I know that that's what's coming. I just know it, Right? I know this one's going to bless, but that one's going to bruise. I know there's certain ones where people are going to go like, oh man, he reinforced my thought. Yes. And then there's other times where I am going to so reject your thought that you're going to be like, I I don't think he's right. All right. (laughs) I might write an email. All right. I know that's the case. And, and, And here's, here's the deal. Just so you can understand a pastor, um, A biblically-centered pastor has one job, to make sure that he teaches this whole book, right? The whole thing. And can I tell you a little secret? I think sometimes people look at pastors and they go, um, well, you guys, you study this, you go to school for it, everything else. You must love everything in it. Nope. I can guarantee you there are things in this book that I just don't like, there are things in this book, in my natural mind, if I were to be God, I would disagree with God. Right? Like, I would do that, but I'm not God. There are weeks where I'll be studying a text, and I'm like, uh, yeah, it says that. I don't like that. I disagree with that. And God's like, you're cute. Now go preach that. <laughs> like, shut up. You're the mailman. I write the mail. You know, like, like and, and I'm like, yep, you write the mail. I'm just the mailman. I just deliver the mail. And so I have to spend my week wrestling with, oh, it's not going to be well received. Not everybody's going to dig it. Some people are going to post it. Some people are going to leave. Some people are going to walk out and say, oh, that guy is so judgmental. Because I read. Because I just read. I didn't make it up. I'm not that clever. I just read. Paul says, man, don't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. He says, that's what I did. He says, you elders do the same. He says, pay careful attention, verse 28, to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. There's two thoughts working together in this section. Really quick. First of all, he's talking to the elders. Man, make sure you take care of yourselves. Take care of yourselves. To the leaders of the church, every elder has a church that he pastors. It's called his home. And if he doesn't keep his home and love his wife and care about his kids and make the investment and God isn't first in his little church, then when he comes to this church, it's going to have problems. There is a spiritual link between the, 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 the life, the personality, the private world, the home of an uh, elder or a pastor, and the church. So Paul says, man, watch that stuff. Pay careful attention. Don't play the hypocritical game of showing up at church and say glory to God, and then at home, it's just you curse him with your life. But you're not consistent. He says, don't do that. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Make sure you live it. Because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's another point right here. Do you know what? Um, the elders of this church, the pastors of this church, you know what? We don't make elders. We don't make elders. The voters, quote, of this church, they don't make elders. Right? Some apostle or bishop someplace, they don't make overseers or elders. It's not from above. It's not from below. The Holy Spirit within the church, he builds elders. When we do things like praxis or classes, we're not building an elder. We can't do that. I don't have that power. That would be awesome if I could be elder builder, Matt Boswell. That would be awesome. I don't have that skill, man. I can barely do an erector set, you know? So much less, like. and there's like anybody under 20, an erector what? Oh, it drives me crazy. So um, I don't even know what that is, man. All right. Oh, you mean Minecraft. Uh, No, I mean an erector set, all right? So, um, now I can't build elders. Elders are built by the Holy Spirit. He makes elders. We just recognize them. Oh, that's who God has risen up to be an elder, right? So he says, pay careful attention. The Spirit is making you overseers. And pay careful attention to all the flock, the church of God, right? Our responsibility as pastors and elders are to do two things, to teach the truth say this is what the bible says even when we don't like it and we want to follow it even when it's hard and we refute error the error of opinion the error of bad doctrine and here's the toughest one the error that reads this book not through the lens of grace but through the lens of law right you can take this book and read it through the lens of law as easily as you can the lens of grace and it leads to two very different paths one is hell one is heaven One is Jesus and one is you. And so the elders of the church are to make sure that the word is protected, the church is protected, they are watching their own lives. Why? Because it says in verse 28, it is the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church isn't merely a religious organization. It's not simply some functional social grouping it's not just a spiritual catalyst. It's not this thing where you go, I'm shopping for it. If it has the best program and the coolest youth group and the whatever band, that's it. It's not just those things. It's not merely an event on Sunday. And it's certainly not just something ridiculed by the culture at large for being extreme, naive, superstitious, sexist, antiquated, archaic, unscientific, unsophisticated, homophobic, hypocritical, or overly political. Did I get them all? Because, um, you know, we're accused of all. And the church is not those things. It's not those things. It is an assembly bought with God's own blood. That's what it is. So when I go, oh, I can't stand my church. I'm so sick of my church. Why don't you say, and I'm sick of the cross. I'm sick of the blood. I'm sick of what Jesus did. I'm sick of God's plan. I'm sick of God's sacrifice. Because when you rip on his church, you rip on his program. You rip on his plan. You rip on his heart. You rip on his gift. And I've had to learn the hard way because I have made a sport at times at ripping the church. Because I'm in it, and I see it, and I miss the big picture. I mean, you look at this. It's a personal sacrifice. God himself does this. It's sacrificial, his own blood. Here's a weird thing. Notice that it says it's the blood of God. This is one of the few places in the Bible where it's going kind to of talk about the blood of God versus the blood of Jesus. You know what that means? Jesus is God. So the next time the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they're like, Jesus isn't God, you go, well, it's really funny. In Acts twenty twenty eight, 28, it says, uh, the church was bought with the blood of God. Ha! Bam! Go to the next house. All right, so... Um, don't do that. That's bad advice. Bad pastor. All right. So, um, good truth, bad tone. All right. So, um, right? The blood of God did it. Right, Took our junk, gave us his righteousness. Don't take the gospel or the church for granted, right? Paul goes on. Verse 29. He says, Know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In their day, it was an act of infiltration. And in our day... It's just we invited into our homes, right? They're not trying to penetrate the church. We just turn on the TV. We just grab a book. We just read an article. And I'm not saying that we don't watch TV and we shouldn't be informed and we should know information. But there is this at times undiscerning absorption of information where like the Bible says things that are really just like undeniable. Like you just like, yeah, it says that, you know, that's just true Then we go, I know it says that, but, man, there was this latest fad. There's this untested speculation. There's this philosophical ideology. There's this political agenda. There's this sexual approval. There's this judgmental bias. There's this monetary gain. There's this parental advisement. There's this material solution. There's this legalistic correction. There is this selfish appeasement. There's this general life principle. There's this thing, and it is way more interesting than this way more complicated than this. It, it soothes my desire to not have to make hard decisions, and so I prefer that over this. Paul would say, man, watch out, those are going to be wolves coming in. Right? Be informed. Be aware. On things that are unclear in this book, because there's unclear things. Hey man, I'm all about gray on the unclear. I'm all about liberty where liberty is due. But where it's clear... We listen. We make sure that we don't get kind of sucked in because what happens is we take all that stuff in. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. There isn't any discrimination in it, and then we go to Bible study. Somebody says, "Well, the Bible says this." We go, "Oh, yeah, yeah." But you know, I was watching Doctor Phil and Muddy. You know, like not diamond out Doctor Phil. He's a handsome man, but still, you know, like or Oprah or whatever your mechanism is. But you go, how does that align, right? How does it align? Paul also says. It's not just the outsiders coming in, but there will from among your own selves arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Right? Within the church, you will have dividers, complainers, embitterers, wannabeers, naysayers, alleged scholars, nitpickers, troublemakers, wingnuts, whack jobs, weirdos, know-it-alls. Trust me. Um... The know-it-alls are the best. It's the first Sunday they come to your church. Hey, we're new here. Here's what you should change. You should check out Adventure Church. They're awesome. That's what They'll love to hear that. The speak, the truth and lovers who don't really do it in love. right? Paul says, "Watch out. Be alert," verse 31, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. He equipped, he corrected. He warned. He prayed. He pushed. He prodded, and he cried. Because it's so dear to him. And with all of that, then he says, "Now I commend to you. Our, now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace." Here's what's awesome. Paul goes back to grace, back to God, and he does this like a good parent. You know what a good parent does? A good parent knows is as their child grows, they have less control and they have more influence. Paul knows that. He knows he can't control Ephesus, he can't control the environment, he can't control the wolves, he can't control the people that rise up. So what he says is, I do the only thing I can, which is I commend you to God and to grace. Right, God, you have to raise them. God, you have to handle them. And grace has to sustain them. And why grace, he says, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Only grace grows people from the inside out. That's it. Don't think that you can apply law and judgment and tap in the chest with your thumb or with your knuckle to change people. Because it won't happen. Only grace can do it. Only grace can do it. Only God can develop. As parents, we have to own that. As leaders, we have to own that. As Christians, we have to own that. Only grace can shape a person from the inside out. Lock can force, cajole, and manipulate from the outside in. But that doesn't change anybody. That just drowns them out, wears them down, forces them into a mold. He says, ah, but grace, that will build you up. And Paul was a man of grace, changed by grace. The Ephesians were changed by grace. You and I are changed by grace, will be completed by grace. And so you see the spirit of grace in Paul. When he says, I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered all of my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we may help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's not just a Christmas statement to your kids. It is a Jesus statement. That is grace. This is when he said these things. He knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was so much weeping on the part of them all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. And they were sorrowful. Most of all because of the word that he had spoken. That they would not see his face again. Grace had knit them. And so they accompanied him to a ship. How could Paul be such a man of grace? It's because he learned early on. Like early on. Um. There's this time in his life where there's this thorn, he says, in his flesh. It's just an image. We don't know what it means. But there's this really hard time. He's trying to be strong and he wanted it removed. And then God says to him, hey, Paul, here's the thing. My grace, that thing you need, my grace is made strong and sufficient when you are weak. See, when we're strong and we're tough and we're self-defending, you know what? Then we're all on our own. You're as strong as you are strong. When we are weak, that's where grace is strong. And what did Paul say of himself? I count my life as nothing. Paul was nothing. In other words, for Paul, it was not about him. It was all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that freedom, that strengthened him. Paul would look and say his name. Jesus' name is the hope of the world. His name is the healer of souls. His name is the restorer of lives. His name is the liberator of affliction, addiction, performance, anger, and mistake. His name is the light in the dark. His name is the word of truth.